Hello, Future Hindsight listeners. Since we're in the midst of a season on systemic racism in America, we feel it's necessary to address the shooting in Atlanta this week, which killed eight people total, and among them were six Asian women. We at Future Hindsight condemn hate and hate crimes against Asians, which has increased dramatically all over the world, and certainly here in the U.S. since the start of the pandemic. Please check in with your Asian friends, family, relatives, and neighbors. They may be affected. And if you have a question and would like to talk to us, email us at hello at futurehindsight.com. We're pleased to announce that this episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's show brings great new interview content to listeners every week. So make sure to check it out. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Dr. Georges Benjamin. He has deep experience both as a physician and a public health official and is currently serving as the executive director of the American Public Health Association. Just as in all the other fields of our society that we've discussed this season on the podcast, the medical system is not immune to racism. This is in part because your race can determine how you're treated by a healthcare professional. But it's in larger part because of the way our healthcare is set up with a small number of healthcare providers in the neighborhoods of our most vulnerable communities and is organized in a way to only properly serve those with health insurance. We all have conscious and unconscious biases. And so we know that racism discrimination occurs throughout our society. It also occurs within the medical system. We have structural issues that impede the quality of care. I worked at the city hospital. We were a trauma center at the District of Columbia General Hospital. We often have what we call the wallet biopsy. So a person would go to one of the private hospitals in town and they would come in with a traumatic condition and it would quote unquote stabilize them. And because they didn't have insurance, then they would transfer them to the city hospital. And of course, disproportionately, these are people of color. We discuss achieving better health outcomes by expanding access to both health insurance and healthcare providers, the long-term downstream effects on our society as a result of our current healthcare system, and the overwhelming impact of COVID on minority communities. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're interested in better understanding in what way racism is embedded in our society that are often not evident to us, which is to say when they're institutionalized. So to start, I thought we'd start with the basics. What are the differences in health outcomes between races in the U.S.? Well, we know that almost in every major health statistics, um, African-Americans in particular, but also uh, Hispanics and in some cases, even Asians and Pacific Islanders have disproportionately more diseases in terms of the prevalence than non-Hispanic whites do. It really is very obvious when you look at things such as high blood pressure, diabetes, 
uh, chronic lung disease. Uh, these diseases disproportionately impact communities of color. We know that there are really four reasons why we see these health inequities. Number one, access to health care. Number two, differences in the quality of health received within the healthcare system. Number three, real issues around certainly health behaviors, in some cases driven by racism and discrimination in some cases, targeting of certain kinds of industries towards those communities, and then a whole range of social determinants of health, you know, differences in education, differences in access to clean, safe environments, differences in economics. All those things we know drive differences in healthcare outcomes for all populations, but they disproportionately impact communities of color. So just to bring it home to us in terms of concrete numbers, for example, how easy is it for communities that are not as well served to go to the doctor in comparison to other communities? We know that in our country, the get into the system card is an insurance card. So those people that work in industries, for example, that don't offer insurance, a lot of domestic workers, people who work in industries where as a matter of Of course, they don't have access to health insurance. That's a big issue. Before the Affordable Care Act, almost three times as many Hispanics than non-Hispanics did not have health insurance coverage. Now, that number has improved some, but not by any ways closing those gaps. The impact on health is startling. So, for example, we know that African-American children are much less likely to survive in their first year of life than white children. While certainly infant mortality rates for all races have gone down, the gap between white Americans and African-Americans have not really narrowed substantially. African-Americans, for example, with uh, this COVID outbreak are three times more likely to get infected and two times more likely to die. And that's really in many ways structural in nature because of the kinds of um, occupations disproportionately that communities of color have. In other words, public-facing jobs, bus drivers, grocery store workers, people who are sanitary workers, people who are working nursing homes and things like that. What are the things that you think about as a public health official in terms of being able to improve that? So we add to the fact that getting health insurance coverage is going to be very important. We have to have a system with everyone in and, and, and no one out. But that's not just enough. You also have to have providers in your community. You also have to have services that are available when you're available. If you are a shift worker and you work a particular shift uh, Monday through Friday days and you don't have paid sick leave, then you're less likely to be able to get health care. Far too many people who are of color don't have a relationship with the primary care provider and often receive their care in hospital emergency departments, in urgent care clinics. And while these are very, very important parts of our healthcare system, there are many things that cannot happen in the emergency department. If you have high blood pressure, the emergency department is not a place to manage your chronically elevated blood pressures. Chronically controlling your blood pressure and checking on you giving you advice about diet and weight loss and how to take your medications properly. That happens only in a good primary care practice. And to get in a good primary care practice, you generally need 
uh, an insurance card. So how can we get everybody insured? Every industrialized nation on the planet has figured out how to do it, except the United States of America. You can do it with private sector options. You can do it with single payer, all government options. Uh, you can do it with a mix of both. And so we just have to be committed to doing it. And I might add that the Affordable Care Act got us very, very close to that. And then the Supreme Court ruled that all states did not have to cover every low-income individual with Medicaid. And that reduced our ability to do it. So now we're in the process of trying to convince the numerous states that have not expanded Medicaid to do it uh, so that they can get more and more of their citizens covered. We just have to have that as a national goal and convince everyone to participate. Can you explain a little bit about how the expansion of Medicaid, if properly implemented, would have really helped provide access to everybody? Because I think that's very ill understood. I think a lot of people think that expanding Medicaid is really just a burden on states as opposed to making healthy societies. You know, the whole issue of how do you expand Medicaid is very important. There are many people that believe that all low-income individuals are eligible for Medicaid. That is not true. So the federal poverty level is very, very low. For a single individual, it can be as low as, you know, $10,000, $12,000 a year. There are some states that have only expanded the Medicaid program to very low levels for pregnant women, and then not long enough after they deliver. So the fact that every person who makes a, a lower income is not covered is the big problem. The Affordable Care Act actually gave additional dollars to states to cover all of their lower income citizens. The challenge is that the states are concerned that the federal government will walk away from them. Now, the truth of the matter is that in those states where people don't have adequate access to health insurance, turns out that the states pay for that anyway. It's just hidden. So for example, when someone has very poor health outcomes, they don't do as well in school. So you might have to pay for more special education for those individuals. So a lot of states have their own programs. They either do it through an insurance mechanism or they simply have free clinics or publicly supported clinics to provide those services. And so they're paying for it anyway. They're just paying for it with 100% state dollars. And one of the things that happens quite frequently is that people don't do the accounting correctly and they don't account for all these dollars that they would not be spending if they had Medicaid coverage for all their citizens. So that's one thing. The second thing, of course, is many of the providers are concerned about that expansion because Medicaid generally pays less than the cost of care. And so because of that, Many of the providers are also opposed to expanding Medicaid. But by the way, you can fix that. The rates that Medicaid pays is up to the uh, states. They have to get federal approval, but the states generally drive that. And so they can increase the reimbursement rates to take away that argument. Uh, we did that when I was a health um, secretary of Maryland. We increased our rates to primary care providers to try to address that significant problem. Oh, wow. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, increasing rates? for the providers? You know, the insurance companies and hospitals and doctors negotiate for rates. Private sector rates tend to be higher than the government's 
sponsored rates, Medicaid and Medicare. And so because of bulk buying, like anything else, when you buy things in large numbers, you get a deep discount. Now, having said that, Medicaid rates are set by the states. And so they can decide they want to pay a higher rate than another state, for example, and to try to encourage doctors to participate in their plan. So one of the things we found out when I was again in Maryland, that we had certain classes of doctors who were not participating because they just weren't getting enough money to pay for their time. Uh, And so they stopped taking Medicaid patients. When that happened, just like any other business, we would increase our rates in order to entice them to come back into the program. I have a question about the quality of care. You mentioned earlier that also communities of color experience a different quality of care. In what ways does it show up that's really, you know, maybe not obvious to people who are not part of that? Prior to the Affordable Care Act, you paid a additional out-of-pocket fee to get your colon rectal screening for cancer or your vaccinations. And so If you didn't have the additional $5 and $10, and by the way, lower income individuals are always struggling to even have $5 and $10 to pay for for something that is preventive in nature. So if you're a woman, you don't get your mammography done and you wait until you can actually fill a, a lump before you get screened, then if that turns out to be a cancerous lump, it's at a later stage of disease and therefore less likely to be treatable or more difficult to be treated. That's one example. Now, after the Affordable Care Act, you don't have to pay anything out of pocket um, to get those screening services. And so people are much more likely to go in and get those screening services. If you get screened earlier, they'll find the disease earlier, and then it makes it easier to treat it. Same thing is true for non-preventive services. Let's say that you have abdominal pain. And it's not real bad, but it bothers you. And you're less likely to go to the doctor because you can't afford it until it gets bad enough that you just can't stand it anymore. And then you go to the doctor. Again, you're likely to have a delayed diagnosis for a whole range of medical conditions. We have people that will only take people with certain kinds of insurance. And so If you don't have insurance, you're also less likely to go to the doctor. We all have conscious and unconscious biases. And so we know that racism discrimination occurs throughout our society. It also occurs within the medical system. But we know that uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asian-Pacific Islanders, if you show up for an appointment, quite often you're not treated as equally in some places as in other places. And that's um, racism that's obvious, and it should not happen, but it certainly does happen. We have structural issues that impede the quality of care. I worked at the city hospital. We were a trauma center at the District of Columbia General Hospital. We often have what we call the wallet biopsy. So a person would go to one of the private hospitals in town, and they would come in with a traumatic condition, and it will, quote unquote, stabilize them. And because they didn't have insurance, then they would transfer them to the city hospital. And of course, disproportionately, these are people of color. In what ways can different kinds of 
institutionalized mechanism, for example, not transferring people out to a different hospital, help in improving the situation in terms of getting the quality of care that every human deserves? Well, let me start by kind of laying the groundwork by reminding folks that race itself is a social construct with very little biological basis. Racism is the core belief of the superiority of one group of people over another. And that there are really three ways in which it manifests itself. Number one, the kind of racism where I hate you because of who you are. And that's based on my view of you being quote unquote, less than me. That's the classic racism that we see. The um, white supremacist issue, the Ku Klux Klan issue, the anti-Semitic issues around religion. But there's also this view of we call structural racism. And that's where we've crafted systems either purposely or not on purpose and that result in disparity. So the purposeful ones were redlining, where we said that this community does not get the best mortgage rates that we will give to all of our other customers. Voting, you know, we've all just went through an election process where we've reminded ourselves of all the rules that were put in place many, many years ago in order to limit the ability of African-Americans, for example, to vote. And then the third one is also very corrosive. And that's where a person or the group of people who have been stigmatized believe what they people said about them. You know, you are never going to be successful and you cannot achieve going to law school or medical school, or you're not going to be a great teacher. So you shouldn't even try. If I couldn't be a lawyer, then what can I be? And so people look around and try to achieve greatness in what they can be. Sometimes in their minds, that greatness is I'm going to be a great uh, drug seller or I'm going to be the toughest guy in the community. When that person has a brilliant mind and could have been the greatest mathematician we've ever seen, but they believe that nonsense that they weren't capable and then they behave that way. In what way would you redo the structure in order to make this less impactful, the stigma? So the first thing I would do is I would continue to try to improve the number of underrepresented minorities who are professionals within the system at all levels, from the highest levels, continuing down to the, the lowest level income or service employee in the system. The number of African-American men going to medical school is actually less than when I went to medical school. And so we've not made much progress in trying to increase the number of African-Americans overall, and certainly not the number of African-American men in medical school. I think I would also make sure that we get a system with everyone in. As I said, everyone needs to have access to quality, affordable health care. We would gather the data. We would measure what we're doing by race and ethnicity. Far too often, we don't see the data being collected and analyzed effectively, and then effective solutions being put in place to reverse them. I often hear from people that they can't find any qualified minorities to do X, Y, or Z. And every time I hear that, I say, you're not looking. Because I know many, many highly qualified people that, again, haven't been given a chance. If you want to be a manager and an executive in healthcare, 
you have to have executive and managerial experience. And so there are many people that would like to do that, but they're not given that experience. And that happens both just based on race. It also happens based on gender. And we just don't do that often enough. You got to give people the opportunities. I think the other thing we need to do is recognize that in an environment where we have many, many barriers to patients receiving the highest quality care, we need to make sure that our services are available when patients need them of all races. That means after hours, that means holidays, that means on weekends. And then we have to audit those services and make sure that the outcomes that we are hoping to achieve are equitable. And then if they're not, then we need to look and find out why. Sometimes it's as simple as there's a structural system that prevents people from getting their shots because uh, we just haven't set up a system so that everybody knows about the availability of a vaccine at the same time. So other people get their shots first. Well, all together, though, it's not simple. Everything that you laid out here, I mean, some of those things are, like you said, not complicated. You have to just find the people who are qualified and they're out there. But all this takes time. We may be in a new year, but some things stay the same, like our awesome sponsor, Jordan Harbinger, and his podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. If you're a longtime listener of my show, you know that Jordan interviews some of the most interesting and successful people alive today and passes their insights on to you. The Jordan Harbinger Show was named one of Apple's best of 2018, and it's easy to see why. His show informs in a way that makes you think critically and helps you make better sense of the world around you. Just last week, Jordan learned some fascinating lessons about the brain with one of the world's most foremost neuroscientists and got an inside look at the shadowy world of antiquity smuggling. Whatever your interests, The Jordan Harbinger Show has something for you. I really enjoy the show and think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have a question about COVID. What has surprised you in the wake of COVID? Like, I think you knew that it was going to affect communities of color more, but is there anything else that you were like, oh, I didn't expect that to happen? Well, let me take on the the time question. Bad news and bad policies and bad programs don't get better with time. We have to put the time in to make sure that we resolve these issues. And because they're tough and because they take time, I just want to emphasize that does not mean that we don't do it because we know we can't. COVID is an excellent example. We knew very clearly that there would be disproportionate impacts. What surprised me was the magnitude of it. Our experience with SARS-1, that was the SARS we had before this one, it was not as infectious. In other words, you generally only got it when you were symptomatic. And we were very successful in containing that SARS virus. Uh, We had very few deaths in the United States from that one. I think there was a false sense of security early on, but it turns out this disease is just far more insidious and far more infectious. And the combination of uh, infectiousness, the fact that you can spread it without having symptoms, 
and the people that most likely were to get infected were all in public facing jobs. I think that combination together exploded this in the communities of color in terms of the magnitude of it in unacceptable ways that, at least initially, I did not anticipate. So in your mind, what's the opportunity after COVID in order to make the healthcare system more equitable? Are there like some obvious things that we can do in the short term? Because I agree with you that the things that we have to do in the long term, we have to do those things. I like I'm a big believer in playing the long game. But there are, I think, I hope, some things that you can do almost immediately. Yeah. So let's talk about COVID. We have to enhance our testing capacity in COVID. You may remember that initially we had these wonderful drive-through facilities, which I thought were pretty slick. You stuck your mouth out the window and you got your test. But if you didn't have a car, and many of these places were not in the hood, so to speak, so the communities of color were less likely to get tested. The other thing early on, we were testing people because of the shortage of tests who were primarily symptomatic. So, you know, two buses and a train ride later and walking a couple blocks to get to the testing site for someone who's not feeling well really wasn't an option. So we need to make sure that that testing gets addressed. Second thing is access to our hospital system. It's going to be very, very important. We now know our hospitals are overrun with cases. And that's a big issue in the rural community right now. Quite frankly, they weren't paying attention as we hoped they would early on. Next thing I think we have to do is make sure that we have equitable distribution of that vaccine. All those same barriers I talked about in terms of access to care will play out even more so with this vaccine. So we're going to have to make sure that our distribution plans are leveraged and maximized for um, all populations. And we need to make sure they're spread out around the country in ways that people can get to them. Yeah, it will have to be a very complex logistical operation in order to get everybody inoculated. So as an everyday person, somebody like me, what can we do so we can demand more equitable health care, whether it's insurance or having better access in terms of having more places to go to and also having better preventive care? So I think the first thing that we all need to do is recognize that every citizen of this planet and certainly every person in the United States needs to have access to quality, affordable health care. And we need to understand that it's a human right. I know it's not specifically written in the Constitution, but it's clearly implied. You know, life, liberty and pursuit of happiness does not occur without access to your health. And while health care is, frankly, only about 20 percent of what makes you healthy, 80 percent of what makes you healthy occurs outside the doctor's office. That 20 percent is very, very important for preventive health. And if we all then believe that, then there are many things that we can all do collectively, making sure that health insurance coverage is available in every state. That does mean fully implementing the Affordable Care Act. They're not necessarily in its current form. We need to improve some of the things on it, but supporting those improvements. I think the second thing we can do is make sure that anytime somebody gives you data, demand that they break that data out by race, ethnicity, ability, disability, to the extent we can, sexual orientation, 
we want to look at all the appropriate populations that are impacted so that we can better understand the equity involved. And then we find areas in which there, there is not equity, demand that our elected leaders and health administrators and policymakers craft meaningful solutions to do it. And then we hold them accountable for that. We have to make sure that um, we have systems that don't price gouge people, you know, paying way too much for medications that were supported by our tax dollars. And then uh, company A buys the rights to company B's drug, and then they jack up the price so that um, something that was very affordable before is now unaffordable. That's absolutely unacceptable. And we should make sure that we um, point that out and don't let that happen. That means supporting regulation. At the end of the day, we are our, our brothers and our sisters keepers. And we have to think about things from a societal perspective, in addition to things about our own health. And, you know, the COVID-19 outbreak, which has been highly politicized when it did not need to be, with the mask being the poster child of that politicization, is an example here. You know, I wear a mask to protect me and I wear a mask to protect you. And yet we've we let people make that somehow a badge of honor to not wear the mask when all they're doing is spreading disease and putting other people at risk. Yes, that's so unfortunate. And uh, well, unfortunate is probably an understatement because it has caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Well, here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I see so many people helping one another still. I see people checking in on their neighbors and their loved ones, making sure that they have adequate food to eat, even though we're kind of locked into our homes right now. I do see pain and distress out there, but I, I see a hopefulness that um, we're going to get through this and that we're going to get through this together. And at the end of the day, I get calls all the time from people, you know, from all sides of the political aisle who say, look, we got, we've got to solve some of these problems together. And so that hopefulness um, is, is really moving me forward. Fantastic. Well, I'm very hopeful also that people are reaching out to you from all corners in the United States and whatever their political persuasion to work with you and bring us good health. Thank you for being on Future Hindsight. I thank you. I'm glad to be here. A lot of things have changed since we interviewed Dr. Benjamin in November. Over 100 million Americans have been vaccinated and the American Rescue Plan was passed and signed into law. Among many other things, it includes funding to hire an expanded public health workforce to address COVID-19 and yet more funding to boost U.S. vaccine distribution. President Biden's goal to make vaccines available for all Americans by May 1st is within reach. Nonetheless, it's no surprise that major inequities in vaccine access are affecting people of color who are significantly behind in vaccination rates. In addition to tackling the pandemic, the new legislation also strengthens the ACA by enhancing premium tax credits in this year's marketplace and incentivizing states to expand Medicaid coverage with additional funds if they haven't done so. This is all good news, but these will not, in and of themselves, solve racism and inequity in our medical system. 
Like Chancellor Gilliam last week, Dr. Benjamin recommends adding diversity at all levels, and especially among doctors, in order to bring about a healthier nation. We're getting so close to overcoming the pandemic, but we need to still remain vigilant. Dr. Benjamin urges all Americans to wear a mask, practice physical distancing, wash your hands, and get vaccinated when it's your turn. Next week, our guest is the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Harvey. She's the award-winning author of Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America, which brings her experience as an anti-racist activist and educator to consider how white communities can more deeply support racial justice work. We talk about the importance of race-conscious parenting to bring about a future where we can acknowledge the truth of America's past and present without letting them determine the choices we make about who we are as Americans. If white families are not actively teaching our kids how to grow anti-racist skill sets, teaching our kids how to identify with the communities that are harmed by racism and white supremacy, they aren't just going to sort of naturally show up as allies. And in a multiracial democracy, it's critically important that white folks are all in in terms of growing the kind of civic environments that we all need and deserve. And so the stakes are incredibly high on the basic interpersonal level around sustaining meaningful and authentic interracial friendships. But also um, the stakes are really high around raising white citizens that are able to show up and be part of justice movements for the good of all of us in this democracy that needs so much work. Until next time, stay engaged, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.